0: On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss Cardinal's recall of over 9 million surgical gowns, the coronavirus, and its potential impact on our industry, the Justice Department's recovery of $3 billion under False Claims Act cases in 2019, and in our focus segment, discuss equipment purchasing and planning, and interview Soma Technologies Ashish Damam about purchasing refurbished equipment. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, a podcast for anyone interested in the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. This episode is sponsored by Soma Technology. Soma is your one-stop shop for purchasing new and reconditioned equipment, equipment rental, and equipment planning. For more information, visit somatechnology.com. That's S-O-M-A technology.com. Welcome to episode 84 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for January 27th, 2020, recording from our studio in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, chief researcher for the ASC podcast and senior nurse consultant for ambulatory healthcare strategies. And I'm here with John Gailey, recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. John is the author of a number of books about the industry and the owner of ambulatory healthcare strategies, the industry leader in ASC regulatory and accreditation governance and quality improvement oversight so we were racking our brains for some personal stuff to talk about <laughs> like we usually do it but you know we're i don't know you say we live a boring life i say it's just been all work lately so there's not anything That's exciting. definitely
1: true this is uh, we're recording on sunday morning well, i guess it's sunday afternoon now mm-hmm. and all we've been doing this weekend is uh is work so yeah mm-hmm. you're right what do you think of the new equipment in the studio
0: I'm so impressed. <laughs> it works well. It's a nice big screen, but i yeah. just not quite as...
1: We were having some problems with some of our technology, so I actually replaced our uh, main podcast recording computer with a iMac, and I've mm-hmm. never been an iMac person, or a Mac person for that yeah. matter, so it's... A, but you love it. I do, it's, and really works well, so hopefully you'll... Our audience will notice the improvement in quality. Also, this weekend, I've been working on revising uh, my books. Uh, The new Ambulatory Surgery Center Regulation Book 2020 edition will be available soon on Amazon. This is one of the basic books with the conditions for coverage and uh, resource lists. Over the next year, I'll be revising uh, a number of the books that are related specifically to the conditions for coverage, so keep an eye out for that. Another exciting news, I'm working with a lawyer friend of mine, Diana Powell, to publish a new series of ASC regulatory books for each of the states. So stay tuned for more information. Massachusetts is uh, is the first one we're working on, and it's almost done. It might even be published this week.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a great idea.
1: So we have quite a bit of news from the industry this uh, week. Sue, so do you want to start off with the Cardinal Health announcement?
0: So I'm going to read from the January 21st press release. Um, on January 21st, 2020, Cardinal Health informed customers of a voluntary recall for the surgical gowns produced by a contract manufacturer after discovering that some of the gowns were produced in unapproved locations that did not maintain proper environmental conditions as required by law, were not registered with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and were not qualified by Cardinal Health. Upon learning of the issue, Cardinal Health initiated an investigation, quarantined the gowns, and placed a hold on distribution of the gowns and started communicating with customers to ensure that the affected gowns were removed from use. Based on the information we had, we determined it was necessary to proactively issue a hold for Amy Level 3 surgical gowns produced by a contract manufacturer since September 2018. These gowns are now subject to this voluntary recall. Of the 9.1 million gowns included in this recall, 7.7 million units were distributed to 2,807 facilities. 1.4 million were produced but not distributed. To help address recall-related supply shortages, we have increased our own production of similar products and our employees have been working to identify alternative products. In many cases, we have been working with industry partners who offer competing products. We are also offering Amy-Level foregowns to help bridge the supply gap. Since the product hold was announced, Cardinal Health has terminated its relationship with the contract manufacturer. As of early January, the contract manufacturer is no longer registered with the FDA. Our top priority is the safety of patients and healthcare workers. We apologize for the hardship caused by the recall and are doing everything we can to resolve this issue for our customers and the patients they serve. Please visit www.cardinalhealth.com backslash for more information and for any updates as they become available.
1: So I think so it's important for us to kind of point out that Cardinal did not themselves manufacture st- mm-hmm. their distributor uh, yes. and that they seem to have jumped on this right away and they mm-hmm. are really doing a I, I think it's a bang-up job in uh, trying to uh, to help their customers f- deal with this. And as I understand, I guess I saw a CNN article that uh, indicated that there's quite a number of, surgery centers and even mm-hmm. hospitals that have had to cancel cases as a result yeah. of the shortage. So this is no small thing. And I thought, uh, I mean, I'm assuming our listeners have heard uh, directly from Cardinal on the, this issue, but you certainly should be looking uh, in your stock rooms to see if these are there and uh, and work very closely with Cardinal to... You know, get replacement gowns, and Mm -hmm. I hope everyone is not affected by uh, this or having to cancel surgery. But I did see, I think, in Pennsylvania, a couple Mm -hmm. centers had to had to cancel. Well,
0: it's a huge number of gowns, so unbelievable number. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and registration is now open for ASCA's National Advocacy Day. Participation in ASCA's National Advocacy Day is the best way to build relationships with your members of Congress, advocate for your ASC and the ASC community, and network with other ASC leaders. This year's National Advocacy Day is taking place in Washington, D.C. on March 24th and 25th. And make sure you sign up today at ASC association.org. I used to participate quite a bit in this. Unfortunately, my travel schedule does not allow me to do it this year, but Mm -hmm. it's always an incredible opportunity. And this is how I really started to understand uh, truly how Washington works and how important it is to maintain an ongoing contact with your your representatives there, and that they really do listen to you. Um, Now, often you don't actually meet with the senator or congressperson, but trust me, meeting with their staff is just as important. They're Mm -hmm. the ones that really do the hard work. I know the uh the, uh the congressmen and women, uh, of course, you know, get all the publicity and they're on television all the time. But the people that really work are those that are working behind the scenes. Uh, this is a great opportunity to, uh, to really get the word out there about the great work that we're doing in the ambulatory surgery industry. So I really encourage everyone to visit ASCassociation.org and sign up today.
0: And Stryker announced recently that the company is launching a voluntary field action on specific units of the LifePak 15 monitor defibrillators. The company is notifying a population of LifePak 15 customers of an issue that may cause their devices to fail to deliver a defibrillation shock after the shock button on the keypad is pressed. This is a result of oxidation that may have formed over time within the shock button. The company is contacting customers with impacted devices to schedule the correction of their devices, which will include replacement of the affected keypad. Stryker anticipates that all devices subject to this field action will be serviced by June 2021. Most complaints associated with this issue were detected prior to patient use. Routine testing of the device can detect this fault condition. If a customer experiences this issue, they should contact Stryker as soon as possible at 1-800-787-9537 and select option 2. The company is instructing customers to continue to use their LifePak 15 monitor defibrillator according to the operating instructions until the correction can be completed. Customers should continue to perform the daily check as described in the operator's checklist, specifically the quick combo therapy cable check as described in the general maintenance and testing section, pages 10-4 and the LifePak 15 monitor defibrillator operator's checklist number 7. Information about this notice is available at strikeremergencycare.com backslash product notices.
1: So I think the important thing to note about this is that Striker has indicated that if you do have a problem, you will detect it on your daily checks. By testing. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because as you were reading that, Sue, I was thinking to myself, I wonder how many people actually completely read that instruction manual, mm-hmm. including all the additional steps it takes, so... Just, you know, make sure, and as with any piece of equipment that you have that has regular checks that have Mm -hmm. to be performed, reading that instruction manual is just absolutely vital. Yes. One of the things I do as a surveyor whenever I go out, to do a survey or a mock survey, is I ask the employees to show me the instruction manual for some of the equipment as we're observing Mm -hmm. it, just to make sure, number one, that they have it, and number two, that they're following the instructions there. Mm -hmm. So uh, again, a good, good point here. Again, kudos to Stryker for identifying this issue and trying to resolve it as quickly as possible. So the Justice Department recovered over $3 billion from the False Claims Act cases in fiscal year 2019. The Department of Justice obtained more than $3 billion in settlements and judgments from civil cases involving fraud and false claims against the government in the fiscal year ending September 30th, 2019. Recovery since 1986, when Congress substantially strengthened the Civil False Claims Act, now total more than $62 billion. The Department of Justice stated that the significant number of settlements and judgments obtained over the past year demonstrate the high priority that this administration places on deterring fraud against the government and ensuring that citizens' tax dollars are well spent. The continued success of the Department's False Claims Act enforcement efforts are a testament to the tireless efforts of the civil servants who investigate, litigate, and try these important cases, as well as the fortitude of the whistleblowers who report fraud. Of the more than $3 billion in settlements and judgments recovered by the Department of Justice this past fiscal year, 2.6 2.6 billion relates to matters that involve the healthcare industry. That's 2.6 billion of the 3 billion in settlements is about healthcare, including drugs and medical device manufacturers, managed care providers, hospitals, pharmacies, hospice organizations, laboratories, and physicians. This is the 10th consecutive year that the department's civil health care fraud settlements and judgments have exceeded $2 billion. The amounts, including the $2.6 billion, reflect only federal losses, but in many of these cases, the department has, was instrumental in recovering additional millions of dollars for state Medicaid programs. So I think this really points out, Sue, the importance of making sure that you have a very strong corporate compliance program in your organization, that you know what's going on. Don't assume that everyone knows, you know, their rights and responsibilities or the responsibility, especially. To detect fraud in your organization. So, if you don't have a corporate compliance program or if you haven't looked at your corporate compliance program recently, I really encourage you to, uh, to look into that matter right away.
0: The CDC is closely monitoring developments around an outbreak of respiratory illness caused by a new coronavirus, first identified in Hubei Province, China. Chinese authorities identified the new coronavirus, which has resulted in hundreds of confirmed cases in China with additional cases being identified in a growing number of countries internationally. The first case in the United States was announced on January 21st, 2020. The patient had recently returned from China where an outbreak of pneumonia caused by this novel coronavirus has been ongoing since December of 2019. While originally thought to be spreading from animal to person, There are growing indications that limited person-to-person spread is happening. It's unclear how easily this virus is spreading between people, so the investigations are continuing. Many states are reacting to this, so... Keep a close eye on your health department's activities and their recommendations.
1: Yeah, I know this last uh, week uh, New York announced some uh, steps that they're taking and they're kind of tying it to the previous work that had been done on the Ebola virus. So very important to keep an eye on this, take it seriously, and uh, keep. we'll we'll keep Mm -hmm. updating you on uh, any new developments that we learn of. And the good news is the CDC is on it. Uh, Hopefully Mm -hmm. we'll have some updates next week. Let's take a short break and come back and uh, do our focus segment on equipment purchasing. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey would like to thank this week's sponsor, Soma Tech International. Ambitual Healthcare Strategies has enjoyed a great business relationship with Soma and we are proud to have them as a sponsor. Soma has been in business for about 30 years and is routinely named in the top refurbished medical equipment market supplier lists. Soma is a one-stop shop for capital equipment needs. They offer new, rental, and refurbished equipment that can save your surgical center up to 50% as compared to brand new equipment. These extra savings can be allocated to other equipment procurement or future projects and renovations. SOMA is able to outfit your entire ambulatory surgical center from surgical tables, infusion pumps, anesthesia machines, and C-arms to ultrasounds, patient monitors, and defibrillators. A complete list of units that SOMA refurbishes is listed on their website, somatechnology.com. SOMA offers many options, including renting and rent-to-own. Renting equipment has many benefits. Your facility can avoid acquisition and maintenance costs on equipment, ensure an immediate availability for needs, and there is no downtime due to repairs or preventive maintenance. You can rent equipment to try out new technologies before your facility commits to purchasing. Soma Tech International is one of the only equipment suppliers that rent surgical equipment. Soma sources equipment from the top manufacturers in the healthcare space, including GE, Gregor, Philips, and more. Each piece of equipment is technically and cosmetically refurbished in their certified ISO 13485-2016 facility. All products undergo a very meticulous refurbishment process where all equipment is brought back to original equipment manufacturer specifications by their in-house biomedical engineering department. Most products come with a one-year warranty on parts and service, and lifetime phone support is also available. Soma is unique in that it has its own parts division where they stock replacement parts for all equipment that they sell. If you wish to learn or hear more about Soma, they have an updated blog on their website at somatechnology.com. That's S-O-M-A-Technology.com.
0: Last week, we talked about accounting, finance, and budgeting. And during that episode, we discussed equipment budgeting. So we thought we'd follow up on this by talking about the challenges of managing equipment and equipment purchasing in the ASC setting.
1: That's correct. You know, an equipment in an ambulatory surgery center is uh, is very important. Ambulatory surgery centers are very capital intensive. And of course, our physicians always want the latest technology. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the reasons often that they leave other institutions or the hospital setting is because perhaps you know the hospital is not conducive to purchasing new equipment. So definitely one of the advantages of using an ambulatory surgery center or building their own surgery center is that they can, uh, if they can afford it, uh, purchase the latest in technology. And the purchasing process in an ambulatory surgery center uh, not only is, but it should be complex and not subject to sudden decisions. so you pick on me all the time because it takes me a year to buy a car because I have to research and I have to check the prices, mm-hmm. and then of course, by the time I buy the car, you know it 's already the next model year anyway um, but you know I, and I think that that 's the way we should handle our business too uh, maybe it 's not quite the way I handle the purchase of podcast equipment um, <laughs> but, but it <laughs> doesn't take me a year to, to buy that stuff. No. Um, but definitely in an ambulatory surgery setting, a lot of the major equipment that we use is very expensive. And, of course, just like cars, it's being updated on a regular basis. You know, I like to tell this story when I do public speaking about uh, when I was very new to the industry, probably in 1992. You know, God, It's coming up on 30 years. I fell victim to a doctor who came to us and said, listen, the, the latest thing is laser skin resurfacing and you need to buy this at the time $20,000, $25,000 piece of equipment to do laser skin resurfacing. So you met with the vendor and the vendor promised, of course, that you could do, you can make a ton of money doing this and the doctor said, oh, you know, I've got so many patients, I think we can probably do a 100 of these a year. Uh, So we purchased the equipment. I didn't really do a good analysis to determine how much money we could make. Uh, Or if I did, I didn't put the right factors in there. And uh, as I I always build up when I'm talking to my audience, (laughs) anybody want to take a guess as to how many procedures we did? (laughs) And the answer is one. We only did oh, one, and that wow. that equipment was sitting around uh, while it was still there when I left the facility eight years later. So we have to be very careful, and we have to be very um, process oriented when we're looking at uh, the purchase of the equipment and managing the equipment. So last week we talked about preparing an, a, a fixed asset budget, and as if I'm sure everybody listened to last week's episode, but if you didn't, uh, one of the things I mentioned is the importance of of looking out five years. So even if you don't have have a budget, or you don't do financial projections on a regular basis. At the very least, you should have a fixed asset budget, and I'll post in our our patrons download page uh, for our patron members uh, an example fixed asset budget uh, that you can use. Just you know, it's, it will be in Excel format. And also, uh, also there is the budgeting and financial projection spreadsheet that we prepared and talked about last week. So uh, the whole concept behind a fixed asset budget is basically to have a complete five-year capital budget. So across the top would be the years, starting with the current year. And on the uh, left-hand side going down, the rows are all going to be the major capital, the major equipment items that you'll have in your organization, such as, you know, obviously things like your sterilizers, your beds, your... Crash cart and the crash cart items, uh, the equipment you know, laparoscopic equipment that you might have, the uh, uh, arthroscopy equipment, uh, cataract surgery equipment, microscopes, phacos, uh, any lasers that you have. Basically everything, and I would say probably everything that costs five thousand dollars or more. And then what you try to do is looking at the state of the equipment right now and talking to your vendors if necessary pretty much try to determine how long it is going to be before you have to replace that equipment. And then in this grid that we just created, the spreadsheet, you drop in the dollar amount for replacement in the year that you think you're going to have to do it. And then you sum up each year to determine what the total capital cost requirements are going to be for that year. And what I recommend is you take this information to the governing body at least once a year, probably quarterly is even better, and uh, show it to them so that there are no big surprises when it comes time to purchase this equipment. You can point to the budget and you can say, listen, this is what you approved at the uh, December board meeting and now it's time to to actually uh, go out for bid. So that leads us to the next section, which is how do we maintain our fixed assets uh, and what you really should have is some type of a fixed asset control system. So before you can prepare a budget, of course, you're going to have to know what equipment you have in the center. Uh, All assets in your organization should be tagged with a label that includes your name and and a unique identification number for that asset. All assets should be maintained on a master list to include the purchase price and your accountants are probably going to want this uh, because they're going to be maintaining a depreciation schedule for tax purposes and for accounting purposes. And this asset list will also help you to kind of uh, periodically check to make sure all of your equipment is where it is expected to be. Ideally, you should keep an asset log for all of your equipment and track maintenance also on that equipment. And these logs should be periodically analyzed to determine if a particular asset is in need of replacement. So these logs are are particularly helpful in trying uh, to – we we never remember – uh, really how frequently that piece of equipment is breaking down uh, when we have so many other pieces of equipment uh, in, a, in a surgery center. So looking back on that log periodically will help you to determine, you know, whether it's time, whether the cost of maintaining that equipment is now starting to exceed the cost for replacing it. Next, let's talk about security for a second. Consider where your assets are located and their value in determining additional security measures necessary to assure that they do not walk out of your facility. Uh, I have always in my centers had uh, cameras placed at strategic locations and those cameras can keep up to a month's worth of video so that if something disappears, we can hopefully identify when it disappeared and who perhaps might have taken it. And obviously, the more expensive equipment of smaller size should be kept in some type of secured area or an area that can be easily locked. Uh, And if it's particularly expensive, you might want to make sure that there is a security camera pointed at it. When purchasing fixed assets, you need to make sure that only higher level administration in your facility is able to sign a purchase contract or a purchase order, depending upon what you you have. Have your employees get multiple quotes for each piece of major equipment and consider using a buying group such as, you know, one of the group purchasing organizations to assist in obtaining the best purchase price. We always know that physicians are looking for the newest and best pieces of equipment, but they don't always know how much it's going to cost or what the ramifications are for the profitability of the center. What you need to do uh, before you purchase any new equipment, especially equipment that is going to be uh, used in conjunction with a new service, is do a full cost analysis of each potential purchase so that uh, you can give this to the doctors and they fully understand how it's going to affect their bottom line. Fixed asset purchases can be funded in a variety of ways, including through outright purchase, loan, or lease. And we're going to talk about financing options uh, in in some future episode. That would be uh, a a really good uh, session. And if we can get a bank to do an interview with, that would even be better. Mm. I think I I have some people in New York City that I might be able to call on to do that. I think that would be a good uh, separate episode. So that leads us to procurement. Most organizations quite frankly only like to purchase new equipment or their doctors only like to purchase new equipment perhaps because they have a good relationship or an ongoing relationship with uh, a particular vendor. The benefits of purchasing new equipment is you're, you know, this is the way to always get the latest technology and you're always assured support directly from the original equipment manufacturer. By the way, and also uh, training, you know, coming directly from the the people that actually manufactured it, I think that's a particular advantage. And also, manufacturers sometimes provide unique purchasing incentives or or even financing. Sometimes they uh, might even be able to do a per-click or per-procedure financing fee that creates havoc for your uh, accountants as they try to figure out how to account for it, uh, but can save you some substantial dollars or at least make your uh, purchase price somewhat tied to the volume of cases that you're doing. On the other side, so the disadvantages of purchasing from a vendor is that it's probably the most expensive option most of the time. And you're reliant on the original manufacturer at least through the end of the warranty period, which means that if you don't have a uh, if you have to pay for any of the the service calls, most likely you're going to be paying a much higher price for it. Uh, there are, of course, alternatives. Remanufactured equipment is very affordable. I have uh, throughout my career used remanufactured equipment with almost no problems. Uh, when I say almost no problems, I remember one very famous situation where I bought a uh, laser that only lasted about a year. But quite frankly, even in that year, we did enough cases that mm-hmm. it allowed me to, I, you know, saved enough money that, uh, uh, and I was kind of cash poor at the time. Uh, by the time that year was done, we had made enough money on the procedures that we performed that we went out and we bought, uh, in this case, we bought a new laser because mm-hmm. um, the ticket. Technology It changed considerably. Many remanufacturers provide the same level of service and sometimes uh, even better service, quite frankly. To that end, we interviewed my friend Ashish Damam from Soma Technology about remanufactured equipment and its benefits. And Ashish gives a really good perspective on, you know, how remanufacturers not only can uh, save you money, but often provide uh, a level of service that can sometimes even rival the manufacturers. So let's listen to that interview. So we're here with Ash Deman He's with Soma Technology. Welcome, Ash.
2: Thank you, John. Thank you, Sue. How are you all this afternoon?
1: Pretty good. All pretty good. good. It's thank you. Um, last week we talked about capital equipment budgeting, and you have been gracious to, uh, first of all, uh, join us as a sponsor. We thank that. Thank you very much for that. But oh, absolutely. This is a topic we really haven't talked about on the podcast in the in the past, and I thought it would be a good subject to discuss. So, first of all. One of the things that we talked about last week is the importance of doing capital equipment budgeting. In other words, preparing on an annual basis, uh, a list of all the equipment that you might need to purchase uh, over, let's say the next five years. And, one of the things that we know in the industry is that uh, equipment is very expensive and that there are alternatives. You don't always have to buy original equipment from the manufacturer and that used, refurbished or remanufactured equipment is, is certainly a good alternative. I've used them a lot over my career and I've had a lot of success with it. So Ash, you and I have talked uh, in the past about the differences between used equipment, refurbished equipment, remanufactured equipment. So I thought we would start by, first of all, see if you can put a definition to those terms.
2: Sure. So, you know, again, there is no textbook definition per se for what remanufactured is, what refurbished is. It's just how the manufacturer, or in this case, any company chooses to use it loosely. But with that said, I think what we define here is when we call something refurbished, it's basically based on the specifications set forth by the manufacturer from the service manual. It doesn't involve adding a new spin to equipment. For example, it does not involve, let's say, uh, you putting in a 5-volt battery when really the manufacturer specified a 3-volt battery to go Mm -hmm. in it. So, yeah, I mean, it may work fine for about a week, but then it may internally blow something inside the boards, which is going to permanently damage something. So we don't remanufacture. When you say refurbish, it's basically sticking to what the service manual says on how you... Uh, spec the equipment. And it's also kind of in lines with, you know, what FDA approved the equipment for. They didn't approve it for you to change some specifications on it and make it remanufactured per se.
1: So I think it's fair to say that people need to be very careful when they're buying used equipment or whatever that term is to really talk to the, uh, the vendor to make sure they know exactly what work has been done on that equipment prior to them taking ownership of it.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you're buying it from a source that you've either worked with in the past or you've heard good reputation about, I think you will be fine. But there is no, you know, guarantee saying someone's not going to call it remanufactured. Uh, a new OEM vendor may call their product. That they sell back into the market as a remanufactured product instead of a refurbished product. It's used very loosely. But, yeah, I think uh, you definitely want to buy it from a source that you can rely on. That's very critical because at the end of the day, this is going to be used on patients at your surgery center. So, absolutely. So,
1: if, if our listener is looking to purchase uh, equipment from a company like yours, what questions should they ask I mean, getting to what you just talked about, but let's be specific. What questions should they ask uh, before they agree to purchase that equipment?
2: I think one of the most important questions that comes to me is what kind of warranty does it come with? Because, I mean, sure, you bought something for thousands of dollars because it's thousands of dollars cheaper compared to that of uh, the new manufacturer. But then let's say it comes with basically no warranty and uh, the third or fourth day in, it fails. What do you do then? So uh, now you've just lost thousands of dollars on a piece of equipment that, you know, you could have really bought with a warranty. And typically, I always suggest that they look for at least a year warranty. It's not very typical in the refurb industry for equipment to come with a one year warranty. I think to me as a customer, that would be a very uh, big comfort factor. If I bought something that came with the same warranty as that of the manufacturer, that would. You know, it would keep me at peace, because let's say six months down the line, something happens to it, and at the end of the day, it's electronic equipment. It may fail. I mean, even new equipment fails, but if you have the warranty, I think that's definitely the biggest thing that sets a good refurb vendor apart from a from a bad one.
1: And you want to make sure that the equipment has been refurbished or remanufactured to the specifications of the original equipment manufacturer, too, Right.
2: Oh, for sure. You know, you want to look at what kind of training their techs have gone through. Uh, This is not equipment that a regular electrician can just come and put together. You want someone that really knows what they're doing. So, yeah, I mean, warranty is definitely the first piece. I should continue to say there's other factors that play into it. Uh, You definitely want to have a checklist of what's been done. To the equipment, Uh, we provide here at our company, we provide every equipment that goes out. There is a little checklist that goes with it telling you all the values it's been tested for, if it's within the range of acceptance from the manufacturer as set forth, and so on. So definitely you want someone that's certified to be working on your piece of equipment that you're going to buy from the vendor.
1: So, Ash, sometimes we hear uh, centers who just decide not to ever consider used or remanufactured or refurbished equipment uh, because they've they've heard about organizations that had a bad experience or they themselves had a bad experience. And I will say that, uh, you know, I've had uh, mixed experiences in the past myself. I mean, I still remember uh, buying a uh, remanufacturer. I thought it was a remanufactured YAG uh, back in the 90s, and uh, it lasted about a year before I had to uh, replace it. So I think it's important to understand that, as you've just said, if you purchase the equipment from a good remanufacturer, then uh, you're going to have most likely a very good experience, and uh, you just have to be very careful about who you choose.
2: Oh, uh, absolutely. I think I can tell you that I deal with this quite often when you know a center may have had one bad experience 10 years ago, let's say, and um, because of which they would never again buy refurbished equipment. It's because of that one bad experience so many years ago. Now, um, obviously, I will tell you in the last 14 years that I've been in this industry, the industry as a whole has come a long way. Refurbish equipment a whole lot differently, a whole lot better uh, with times. I mean, we've improved on our own technology when it comes to using the test equipment we do. If you're an ISO 13485 standard company, 2016 standard company. So I don't think a center or an individual should make one bad experience from the past a reason for not saving money today. I mean, it's similar. Let's say you have had one bad car experience that you bought a used car for, let's say some 12, 13 years ago, that doesn't mean you will, you know, shut off used cars forever. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. obviously, it all depends on what your usage is and how it's going to work for you. But at the end of the day, if it's the model you want and it's presenting you the savings and the warranty, similar to that of a new car, you should obviously make the most of that savings. And it applies the same exact way to refurbished equipment too. I, I just don't think, one bad experience in the last decade should stop you from ever considering equipment again. That's refurb.
1: So recently you helped one of our clients to uh, get a new defibrillator. I, I believe that the one uh, that they had had to go to the museum because it was so old. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, we called you. And uh, can you tell a little bit about that experience? Because I think that's good for our listeners to understand, you know, how that process can work and uh, how quickly, you know, an organization such as yours can can step in.
2: No, absolutely. Actually, uh, that particular client in New York had a monophasic interpolator in use, which is, like you said, you said it, right? Definitely museum quality. (laughs) Uh, It's not used... I don't even think developing nations use monophasic anymore. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, this particular client had a need. I think it was pretty much coming to a code requirement today that he had to upgrade to a biphasic unit. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's actually a very requested product and that goes on to tell you people's trust in refurbished equipment too when you're buying a life-saving piece of equipment like a defibrillator that you know and it's working method it shocks a patient and brings their heart back to life is uh, a very critical component a very critical piece and this is something the refurbished vendors sell quite a bit of so it just speaks about the quality of work they do. So how
1: long was it from uh, when he first contacted you to the point at which you were able to ship it? Uh,
2: Something like a defibrillator. Now, I don't exactly remember uh, the dates for his purpose, but I know it was a rather urgent need where it was required for them to operate the center. And it was probably an overnight order, if not like a two-day order. Okay.
1: And here's the big question our audience wants to hear, I'm sure, is how much do they save over the cost of a new one?
2: I would say for the model that they purchased, it was at least about 4000 to $5,000 compared to that of a new one.
1: Right. So needless to say, Ash, when an organization uh, you know, saves $5,000 on something like that, as you purchase more and more equipment, it's going to certainly add up to a significant savings to an organization.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's just one piece of equipment that sits on a crash cart. Imagine... Uh, you multiply that with an entire operating room. Or if you're setting up a new facility, maybe two or four operating rooms. So the savings do add up. I mean, there is a reason why more and more doctors, not just doctors anymore, more and more corporations are looking at going the refurb route for savings because there is absolutely a huge savings that you can accomplish by by going with uh, your entire operating room built with refurbished equipment.
0: And when you look at the difference between not being able to afford something so you end up having something that's museum quality (laughs) and being able to find it at an affordable price that can make such a huge difference in patient care.
2: Sue, actually, you you made a great point, and it's funny to use museum quality um, (laughs) or old antiquated equipment, Mm -hmm. but it's actually a commonplace. And when you survey or visit surgery centers today, it's not very common to see equipment from the early 90s even, Mm -hmm. uh, from the mid 90s, which is actively being used on patients. And I think a lot of that is to do with just the basic stigma around buying new capital equipment. A lot of people just have it assumed by default that it is very expensive and it's basically going to be you know, an act of God for our physicians Mm -hmm. or owners to sign on new equipment, which is, you know, easily going to run into the hundreds of thousands or maybe even a million dollars, depending on what is it that you're trying to buy new. And that's exactly where I think refurb savings come into play. It's because, you know, it's not, well, sure, it's still going to be a few thousand dollars, but it's definitely going to be half as bad. So Mm -hmm. there's definitely a reason to consider Upgrading, and you don't always have to just upgrade by buying new equipment. You can still come to the standard date range by buying refurbished equipment.
1: And to that point, you mentioned just a little bit earlier is that it's not just uh, cash-strapped surgery centers that do this, that purchase refurbished equipment. You've got major hospital systems, major management companies that purchase from you on an ongoing basis, correct?
2: Absolutely. I mean, we have uh, quite a few contracts and a lot of the IDN systems have been now considering refurbished quotes as a standard practice. If you do a cost analysis on a side-by-side basis of what it takes to buy uh, new equipment to outfit a whole operating room compared to that of a refurbished outfitted operating room, you can see the savings right there, and it runs easily into the hundreds of thousands of dollars.
1: So let's talk about equipment planning. So equipment planning isn't just for the beginning of an operation. It's just not only when you uh, purchase the equipment upon the establishment of your surgery center, it's also for really ongoing things. As I mentioned, you know, you should be doing capital equipment budgeting on an annual basis and preparing for all those major purchases that you're going to have. How can a a company such as yours assist a surgery center in preparing that capital equipment budget?
2: Sure. So... As a center, I don't think it's a wise idea to be doing a Hail Mary every time you require a critical piece of equipment (laughs) because you didn't foresee something going down and you didn't quite foresee it because you didn't realize the equipment was 25 years old. So I think any organized institute, whether it be an ASC or an IDN that's running uh, ASCs or a management company, should have the standard practice of making capital budgets for next year. And you always have to be evaluating, maybe even with your uh, standard biomedical company, whoever your biomedical support staff is, on what they see as something that is coming close to the end of its life or work with your you know, director of nursing or your physicians to see if there's something that they would like to see different uh, than what it is right now and then start planning a budget. You always want to allocate money for the next year. Towards a certain piece of equipment that you definitely want to replace. Let's say in the second quarter of 2020 and You know, maybe even one piece of equipment for each quarter Not everything needs to be that expensive, but whatever it is at the end of the year you have replaced a certain number of equipment I think capital budget planning is very critical There's equipment planners. Obviously we work with a lot of them on a very regular basis on certain redesigns and relocations. But even in general, even if you're not moving, even if you're not relocating, you should always plan some sort of capital budget for next year uh, because it is needed. That's the only way you can keep up with the new equipment standards. Not that it's a necessity, but you want to stay ahead of the curve.
1: We want to make sure we don't surprise our owners with a, a very large capital expenditure. So you should. I, you said one year, and you're talking about the immediate needs, but we really should be planning out You know, a good five years because equipment planning and preparing or, or making sure Absolutely. that you have enough money has got to be... You know,
2: I agree with you. I well think added. it's good to have a multi-year uh, budget laid out. And uh, obviously, you can move things around depending on the condition and the changes as they happen, but I think it's really good to have uh, a multi-year budget ahead of you.
0: And one of the things we've seen is people starting to rent um, equipment at their higher census times to avoid having to always buy something.
1: Which is a big problem for us in the Northeast. When mm-hmm. All of our uh, people go south Snowboards. during parts of the year. you know, So you might have a, a period in which you need uh, a much higher demand for, uh, for certain types of equipment. So how, how can uh, an organization, again, such as yours, assist in that process?
2: So that's a trend that we're starting to see more and more happen in the last, I would say, the last three to five years, especially during the end of the year, the last quarter, Q4, is a big year to get all your elective surgeries done. So you can use up the copay on your insurance and you know, mm. things of that kind. Yeah, good especially people who so,
1: have high deductible
2: plans. Yeah, that, oh, absolutely. 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 So what we do here at our companies, we allow for equipment to be rented uh, during peak need season. You typically may have heard of that happen in hospitals during the flu season when, you know, there is a huge demand for infusion pumps and uh, monitoring devices because there is a high census. But it's not very uncommon for you to see something like that in a a surgery center for the last quarter because everyone wants to get their surgery done before the holidays or, you know, before the end of the year. So we do allow for equipment rentals and we also have uh, an option for the customer to own the equipment. It's uh, what we call as a rent to own option. So that is definitely something our customers have loved and take benefit of.
0: And I love the idea of renting a piece of equipment when a center is bringing on either a new doctor or trying out a new procedure that you can rent the equipment and not completely committing to it and kind of see how it goes, see if that procedure works out at your center, see how it goes with the doctor, and then you can purchase it if it all goes
2: well. Definitely. Sue, instead, uh, I'll give you an example where a center uh, was signing on with a new uh, physician, a spine physician, and the amount of equipment they needed to invest in was easily over a quarter million. And that I'm saying quarter million uh, refurbished Mm -hmm. equipment. Now, to commit to something like that without proven results is obviously a stress on your finances. And it's not easy. So, in in that case, what we do and what a lot of our centers that work with us have done is basically rent the equipment for a couple months, see if they like it, and, you know, see if it works out with the doctors and if they bring it in the patients they hope that the doctor would bring. Mm-hmm. And if it works out, great. They obviously change it from a rent-to-own situation, or if it doesn't, all you have to pay is a rental. So, that's a program we're very proud of here at SOMA, and... Um, I I have to say it's being used more and more. Mm-hmm.
1: We run into that a lot. I was just at a center uh, last week where we had purchased all this urology equipment. Actually brought the doctor on board as an owner, and of course they saw him one month. And now we have all that equipment. We mm-hmm. have him as an owner, and we see him like every three months once. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you're, to your point, this is an incredible opportunity. And and it used to see it with uh, original equipment manufacturers doing this, uh, not so much anymore, especially with those high demand vendors. So I, I think that's a great uh, great option that's out there now.
2: Yeah, I don't think it's a standard practice for new equipment vendors to have um, equipment rentals. It's, yeah. it's very uncommon for surgical equipment as such to be rented. So
1: right, yeah. Well, I usually see it like a demo period, but Correct. they certainly don't want to carry that too long. So
2: that's how, right. How
1: can a company such as yours help a new center? So we know that. Major equipment purchases can happen a number of times in, in the life cycle of an organization, like when you're establishing that organization or that center, uh, when you're expanding or when you're relocating. So talk a little bit about equipment planning and how uh, an organization such as yours can assist an ASC.
2: So when you're planning a new center, I think the biggest expense, besides the building cost itself, is Obviously, the equipment cost and depending on how many specialties you are planning to open in the center, uh, let's say it's uh, four to five, then you're fine. But if it's a huge multi-specialty center where you have nine or even 11 specialties planned, that is going to take your equipment budget easily into the three to four million, depending, of course, on the number of operating rooms you plan to operate. But either way, if you are... In a uh, financial crunch, which uh, is pretty small the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and then you want to save on uh, all the capital spending that you're doing. Obviously, you can't compromise on the building. Really, uh, that leaves you with few uh, options. One is not opening as many specialties, right. uh, two is actually buying the equipment from a source where the equipment is not as expensive as new. And that is one place where uh, equipment planners and management companies and even new center administrators and owners can look at for refurb equipment. Your capital budget that was three to four million can now be cut down from three to four to half of that, let's say, uh, two million. And right there is your savings um, that you can't quite get from, you know, compromising on the building or anything of that kind. But you have the same exact model, the same exact equipment. It's just not new, but it still holds the same warranty as new.
1: So, Ash, I think one of the things that uh, perhaps people that are purchasing equipment uh, might be concerned about is what happens when you've, uh, you you talked about having a warranty, but what types of service should we expect, post-sale service should we expect uh, from a company such as yours?
2: So, I think that's a very critical component to consider when buying refurbished equipment. So, John, I think a great piece of equipment to consider as an example for after-sales service would be uh, a C-arm. It probably is one of the most expensive pieces of equipment that you would find in a surgery center. And it's quite critical for it to be functional at all times for you to perform your surgeries. I mean, a lot of ortho and multi-specialty surgeries do require the presence of a C-arm in the operating room. So uh, for something like that, we actually have partnered with uh, technicians that are certified to work on our equipment nationwide. We have a huge list of our field service network operators that we actually have in place before the equipment ships out of here. So when we are shipping, I'm going to make up a zip code, 06002, we make sure we have someone in an hour's vicinity to actually service the equipment should there be a problem. And it's also always the same person that goes there to install the equipment when it is delivered. It probably happens the day after or the week of delivery. The same person is the one that installs it, that's trained on it, that's certified on it. And should there be any problems that come up during the warranty period, it is that person that will also service the equipment.
1: So I think what you're saying is that it doesn't matter uh, if you're buying from the OEM or the original equipment manufacturer or from a, a reputable uh, remanufacturer that you're, you're going to get or you should expect that same level of service.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I actually encourage everyone to ask who is going to be servicing my equipment if it fails during the warranty period. Uh, instead, I think if a company is able to provide that information, that is just a more resounding answer saying, yeah, um, uh, we will be there for you.
1: So, Ash, uh, that's great during the warranty period, but uh, what happens when the, the warranty expires?
2: It's something that you are open to carry on. Your, we offer extended warranties. You could buy extended warranties from our company. Uh, I'm sure there's other uh, refurb vendors that sell equipment that do offer the same. But with any capital equipment, you can choose to go with your local biomed company that is or has been supporting you with the uh, your biomedical upkeep and, you know, equipment upkeep, you can basically slide the equipment onto a warranty from them, or you could choose to go with the original manufacturer for a warranty from them. So if you bought a brand new GE piece of equipment from a refurbished vendor, you should be able to get it warranted after the warranty period from that refurb vendor expires. To If you choose to go with GE, they will definitely take it on their warranty, or you could continue on with the warranty that the refurb vendor offers to you.
1: Wonderful. So, Ash, we talked about uh, why you would want to buy refurbished equipment, but are there circumstances in which you really need to avoid refurbished equipment?
2: So, John, are you asking what equipment you would not buy refurb?
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Okay. So, one thing that definitely comes to mind, and I get a lot of requests for this, is uh can we buy stainless steel, whether it be mayo stands or any stainless steel equipment refurbished? Uh, honestly, unless it's a very critical pricing situation, I think uh, you should try and stick to brand new stainless steel as much as possible. There's very little you can do when it comes to refurbishing stainless steel. And a small dent or a big dent is really not that easily repairable. So I think that is one category of equipment that I would probably always consider buying new and not refurb. So that's the thing that comes to mind this very second. But I really don't think outside of that, there is anything that I would stay away from buying refurb.
1: So if you were to give one piece of advice to our our listeners as to uh, a sure sign perhaps that you are not dealing with a reputable remanufacturer, what would you say?
2: It's funny you asked that, John, because about two years ago um, at a California conference, uh, one of the attendees actually asked the same question, how would you know a bad vendor from a good vendor in the refurb market? Uh, honestly, one piece of advice that I strongly would have for everyone that's listening is do not pay money up front to a vendor for a piece of equipment that he or she has promised you will be delivered in four to five weeks' time or anything as such. I mean, honestly, in that case, the vendor is basically taking your money and shopping for the equipment and then basically bringing you the equipment after the promised date, maybe a few weeks or months after the promised mm. date. So yeah. be very careful with uh, who you pay up front. No good refurb vendor would actually ask you for a money up front. And if they do, you know, that's the first sign.
1: Right. They'll ask for a deposit, but not the the full amount is what you're saying.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's common to see a small deposit, right. but it's very uncommon to have the entire money paid up front, especially weeks before. I mean, I can even see things being somewhat like pay upon delivery, but it's not the same as, hey, pay me 100000 so I can go shopping. Yeah, <laughs> something I would strongly recommend people stay away from. <laughs>
1: good advice. Good advice. Ash, this has been great. I really appreciate your input. And how do people get in touch with you?
2: We're very active on the web. We have a great website, somatechnology.com. It is a great information resource for you to find uh, equipment, read about the specifications of equipment. We have a very active web team that does uh, amazing blog posts. We have a part on the blog where we actually compare different pieces of equipment to see you know, which one is best suitable for your needs. There's Quite a bit of web presence, but obviously we are always available uh, weekdays on the phone and uh, email.
1: Okay. Again, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, John. Thank you, Sue. Thank you. This is a new section that we've added to part three where we talk about state-specific information. And we have uh, asked our listeners to uh, write to us if they have any state-specific issues that they would like to have announced. And Jessica Rodriguez from Michigan is uh, she's an ASC administrator with Metro Health Surgery Center uh, and also very active with the uh, Michigan Ambulatory Surgery Association. Uh, so she provided me some information about two bills that are currently working their way through the Michigan State Senate and a copy of the House bill. The Senate vote is currently scheduled for this coming Wednesday. Uh, she spoke to the Senate Finance Committee to answer any questions regarding implants and how they are used and how they are procured in in their centers. So the Michigan Ambitatory Surgery Association is requesting support. So they're asking um, ambulatory Surgery Centers to support HB 4203-4204-H-2 to exempt medical implants such as screws, plates, artificial joints, and other implantable prosthetic devices from the state sales tax. Historically, Michigan has not applied sales tax to medically necessary items such as prescriptions, durable medical equipment, mobility equipment, Uh, or prosthetic devices, and this includes implantable devices like orthopedic implants used in joint replacements such as shoulders, hips, and knees. In July 2018, specific orthopedic implant vendors began invoicing freestanding outpatient facilities, better known as ASCs, for sales tax on these items. The Michigan Treasury has since issued a letter clarifying that these items do not meet the dispense pursuant to prescription standard, including the sales tax exemption for prosthetic devices, but rather these items are eligible for resale exemption. Due to the original construct of the statute, this legislation that the MASA is supporting is needed to clarify and streamline the exemption for s- facilities from paying state sales tax on these implants, items that would never be used outside of a hospital or an ASC. The bill narrowly exempts hospitals and freestanding outpatient surgery centers from being required to pay sales tax on these medically necessary implants. Uh, And this is uh, what the the H-2 substitutes will do. uh, It will create a clear exemption for prosthetic devices that are implanted into a human without differentiating between sites of service, continues the historical trend of medically necessary implants that are used in a surgical setting in a hospital or ASC from being subject to sales tax, and does not create any new exemptions for items currently subject to sales tax such as over-the-counter orthotics and knee braces. And it remains compliant with the interstate sales tax streamline agreement. So if you are in the state of Michigan, uh, make sure that you uh, write or call your state uh, representative in support of this very important bill.
0: So this isn't something I've heard of before. Do Do most states... Charge sales tax on these items?
1: No, quite the contrary, actually, and I mean, at least for my knowledge, mm-hmm. is that uh, you know it's rare that uh, we pay sales tax on any of the, uh, the supplies or especially implants that are used in a medical procedure. So, and I don't think uh, in, in this particular case it was the intent. It's just that there was some confusion over the matter, and mm-hmm. you know the device manufacturers were uh, you know probably taking a very uh, broad approach to it. And, mm-hmm. Just want to clarify uh, it. Yeah, right. and again, this really I mean, kind of points out the of these state associations and in, mm-hmm. in working on behalf of the industry. Uh, maybe that's a good time to kind of point out how important it is not only for you to, uh, to uh, you know, support the ASC Association at a national level, but if your, your state and virtually all states do uh, has a state association, please support them also. And mm-hmm. we're working very hard on the podcast here to make sure that we uh, make announcements, uh, you know, about upcoming events for uh, state associations. And we'll do everything in our power here really to mm-hmm. kind of encourage people to become part of the state association
0: we do want to thank jessica for sending that in because absolutely thank you It's very a, helpful for us
1: literally within a day of my <laughs> asking for it so i appreciate that yes.
0: so here's some upcoming events
1: if you'd like your event to be included in the podcast please send the event information to info at ascpodcast.com
0: it's one of the most sought after speakers in the industry john is available to speak at your state or national meeting and the asc podcast with john gailey can even record an episode from your meeting
1: The first ASC Nurse Leadership Conference presented by Progressive Surgical Solutions will be Thursday, February 6th, and Friday, February 7th at the McKesson Headquarters in Dallas, Texas. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies is a proud sponsor of this event, and we hope to record a special episode from there.
0: The Georgia Society of Ambulatory Surgery Centers and South Carolina Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's joint semi annual conference and trade show is February 20th through the 21st at the Westin Atlanta Perimeter North in Atlanta, Georgia.
1: Triple cs Achieving Accreditation is an interactive, in depth, two day seminar designed to help organizations prepare for their Triple HC survey. And uh, the next one is March 13th and 14th in Miami, Florida. If you're considering a change from IMQ to Triple HC, this is a great opportunity to learn more about Triple HC.
0: And as we mentioned, this year's National Advocacy Day is taking place in Washington, D.C. on March 24th and 25th. Participation in ASCA's National Advocacy Day is the best way to build relationships with your members of Congress, advocate for your ASC and the ASC community, and network with other ASC leaders.
1: The AORN Global Surgical Conference is in Anaheim, California, March 28th through April 1st, and we're going to be attending the conference and recording a special episode there with interviews with various speakers.
0: The Florida Society of ASC's Quality and Risk Management Conference is April 16th and 17th in Buena Vista, Florida.
1: The Iowa Association of ASC's 12th Annual Education Conference is April 17th and 18th in Johnston, Iowa.
0: ASCA 2020 in Orlando, Florida is May 13th through the 16th. It is the ASC industry's most highly regarded and well-attended event. Attendees include physicians, administrators, nurses, managers, and owners of ASCs from across the country and throughout the world. At ASCA's annual conference, you will find more than 50 educational sessions designed for ASC professionals at every level, nationally recognized ASC management experts, networking opportunities with more than a 1,000 of your colleagues, hundreds of exhibitors who can help you find the solutions your ASC is looking for, the latest regulatory and accreditation updates make sure you sign up to attend. And of course, many of us will be there. That's I right, not, but you will be <laughs> there for the rest of the company.
1: And, yeah, and as I mentioned last week, we have a, we're going to have a special studio there uh, mm-hmm. with glass walls so that uh, everybody can see us. So uh, is that the reason you're <laughs> not going? That might be part of it. <laughs> <laughs> Becker's 18th annual Future of Spine and the Spine Orthopedic and Pain Management Driven ASC Conference is June 18th through the 20th, 2020 at the Swiss Hotel Chicago in Chicago, Illinois.
0: The Florida Society of ASC's annual conference and trade show is July 15th through 17th at the Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida.
1: The Ohio State Association Conference will be September 30th to October 1st, 2020 at the Hilton Columbus Polaris in Columbus, Ohio.
0: Well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCPodcast.com and spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The
1: sound editor for this week's episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, and Lori Rodericks. The SC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels.
0: This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. We would like to thank this week's sponsor, Soma Technology. Soma is your one-stop shop for purchasing new and reconditioned equipment, equipment rental, and equipment planning. For more information, visit somatechnology.com. That's S-O-M-A technology.com. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring with the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at